I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. That it is. It is. <laughs> We're recording during the day. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of fun to see you in the light of day. It is kind of weird. I feel like we haven't recorded in this space during the day ever. I don't think we have. Wow. Mm. Fascinating. There's a first for everything, B-T-S. right? BTS. <laughs> Not the group behind the scenes. <laughs> oh, yes. It's such an inside scoop. We're recording during the day. <laughs> wow. Wow. So unique. All right. Well, this week we are going to be giving you problematic feminists. And I don't think we've ever done this before, have we? We've done like problematic feminists, like music faves and things like that, but not necessarily like problematic feminist you know I'm gonna be real honest we've been doing this for almost four years yeah I don't remember I know that we've done problematic feminists in some capacity before right uh, whether we've ever done it this broadly I'm not sure yeah so yeah I don't know because I, I felt know. like my possibilities were really endless with this one with like the forgotten feminist faves it's getting harder and harder to find people that are like not problematic that are yeah. in the movement and things like that where I feel like it's super easy to find problematic feminists through history I will say you know it was funny whenever you proposed doing this topic because both of us immediately were like oh Lena Dunham 100 (laughs) percent and then I I know you didn't end up doing Lena Dunham and I didn't end up doing Lena Dunham either I was so ready to try we should just do Lena Dunham together that's why I was like you know what I'm gonna hold off on that because clearly we both have a lot to say we have a lot of feelings about Lena Dunham I think yeah so I was like let's just hold off and we'll do that one together at a later date because you know what I really found with mine which we'll talk about later 
it's complicated, right? Like that's the thing about any of these like problematic faves, whether it be people or TV shows or characters or like whatever else it is. It's like there is good stuff and bad stuff. Yes. And a lot of times I feel like in the feminist movement, it's a lot of like well-intentioned things but then a lot of ignorance and a lot of unwillingness to educate themselves to become more progressive and things like that. And I think the person that I'm going to be discussing encapsulates all of that really, really well. Are we doing the same person? Oh my God, I hope not. Who are you doing? No, no, you're going first. You have to tell me who you're doing. Betty Friedan. Oh, okay, good. Oh, okay. (laughs) No. Okay. Ooh. I mean, it would have been fine. It's only ever happened once that we've done the same person, but I was like, oh my God, did we think of the same person twice in the same and week? And actually, I really feel like with my person as well and with Betty for Dan, if we had ended up doing the same person, it would have been fine because I, I really do feel like Betty for Dan could have a whole episode to herself. Oh like, yeah. There's so much stuff. And so I kind of based mine, my research mostly off of the, uh, a couple different New Yorker articles and then as well as just referencing the Wikipedia page and things like that. But I I tried to really focus more on the problematic aspects and that part of her history because doing a biography on Betty Friedan, it'd be a lot. It would be a lot, a lot, a lot because she did so much. So let's get started. If Betty Friedan were alive today, she would be 100 years old. She died 15 years ago on her birthday, February 4th, at the age of 85. She died on her birthday? She died on her birthday of congestive heart failure, yeah. I always feel like that is a bummer. Like, when I'm walking around cemeteries and you see, like, born on this day, died on this day, I'm like, oh, man. It kind of seems complete to me. You like it. You like the cemetery of it. I think there's something poetic about it. It's like you start and end your life at the same time time it's kind of like a nice I don't know yeah interesting I don't know I think it's kind of cool I would be more disappointed in dying like the day after my birthday or the day before Before. I've seen those two and I'm like oh oh if I was like 99 and 364 days old oh I I would would be such a bummer I would raise some hell yeah literally I would raise hell people for sure (laughs) I would haunt people on my 100th birthday and be like celebrate me can tell it's spooky season yeah totally well funnily enough they did have a 100 year celebration for Betty Friedan for her 100th birthday there was a pandemic safe event called the 100th birthday webinar produced by the veteran feminists of America the event was streamed on multiple platforms and featured Gloria Steinem Senator Elizabeth Warren Alicia Garza who is one of the uh, Black Lives Matter founders and Christian Nunez who is the president of the National Organization of Women or now which Betty founded. Her children also attended the event sharing what life was like to grow up with the so-called mother of the feminist movement. Also, Senator Chuck Schumer declared February 4th to be Betty Friedan Day, which is her birthday and her Mm -hmm. death date. When asked what Betty Friedan's legacy was, Rebecca Joe Plant, a historian for the University of San Diego, says, as with everything, Betty, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, as with anyone I really I really think about this a lot and it's not a get out of jail free card it's not I'm not saying this to excuse any of the beliefs or behavior of any of these people I mean especially with Betty Friedan I feel like we have been very critical in a fair way yes about her in the past but I do sometimes think about like the way we progress as a society and how any of our ideas and beliefs are going to be viewed like you and I have said so many things now almost four years into this podcast that like I fully believe that not all of it is gonna age perfectly it's not gonna age perfectly but I do think that there is a responsibility that you have if you are especially the mother of a movement yeah that's what you're claiming yes to 
grow with it and to nurture those who are wanting to work with you and things like that. But to not be so stubborn because she was extremely stubborn. She was extremely stubborn. And that's the thing that makes Betty Friedan also very complicated is that she wasn't very likable. Like she wasn't a very nice person. She wasn't very like she was just a very, very, very frustrating human being, to be honest. She was born Betty Goldstein in Peoria, Illinois in 1921. Both of her parents were Jewish and her parents were from Russia and Hungary, respectively. Her father's name was Harry, who owned a jewelry store, and her mother was Miriam, who wrote for the society page of a newspaper once her father, Harry, fell ill. To young Betty, her mother's life outside the home seemed much more exciting than the life she lived as a housewife. Betty's biographer looked through her papers and found that Betty saw her mother as a strong, effective woman who hated staying home and who took her frustrations out on her husband. Betty did not want to be like her mother. I think this foreshadows some of her behavior, especially in her marriage later on, Mm -hmm. that her mother was... I guess, more the aggressor in her opinion in the family, where her father uh, kind of was more the wilted flower, I guess. So her mom had more of a dominant personality. Yeah, I think especially once her dad got sick, the mom kind of like took charge with things. And Betty was like, I don't really want to be that way. Betty was active in both Marxist and Jewish circles growing up, yet she wrote that she felt isolated in her Jewish community at times as her passion against injustice originated from my feelings of injustice of anti-Semitism. She went to Peoria High School and got involved with their school newspaper. When one of her columns was turned down for the paper, she and six of her friends launched a literary magazine called Tide, which discussed home life rather than school life. She then went to Smith College, an all-female school, in 1938. She had received a scholarship for her first year for outstanding academic performance in high school. She had become interested in poetry her second year of school and published many of them in on-campus publications. She also became editor-in-chief of her college paper in 1941, and under her leadership, the articles became much more political, taking a strong anti-war stance and occasionally causing controversy. She also wrote about Jim Crow laws and anti-Semitism. So this is already uncovering a bit of a lie that Betty tells about herself in The Feminine Mystique and also during the media following that. She really kind of gave this story of like, oh, I was just this humdrum housewife before I wasn't political I didn't I wasn't raised that way which she was she was always raised in a very like activist I guess type community um she looks like she always sought that out as well and that is that's true I mean that is the story that was fed to us I think it's a much like um more sexier story like yeah. more Hollywood it's more kind catchy of story that, yeah. it, that was this this like lonely housewife who suddenly came up with this idea rather than someone who's actually had a lot of history in yeah. writing and politics and being anti-war and things like that like she already was very very smart when it came to any sort of movement right Betty graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa, sorority girl, wow. in 1942 with a major in psychology. And then also she, went, she has a major in psychology. And she has a major in psychology. Okay, Betty, we see you. Right? I see exactly. you, Betty. And then, so after Smith, she spent a year at the University of California, Berkeley, where she had a fellowship for graduate work in psychology with Eric Erickson, which I think is hilarious that this person's name is Eric Erickson. I, why do people do that? I don't know. There was a lawyer who used to do commercials, I think still does, in Springfield, Missouri where I'm from yeah whose name was Brad Bradshaw that's awful and I was like why why your did parents- your parents do that to that poor child Eric Erickson is most known for coining the phrase identity crisis mm-hmm. okay so I also think 
that is quite interesting because yeah. what would you call a housewife that is suddenly yearning for more? You would say that maybe she's going through an identity crisis, right? After leaving Berkeley, she worked as a journalist for leftist and labor union publications. She then married Carl Ferdan, a theater producer, in 1946 while working at UE News. Carl had just returned home from the war. She did continue to work after the wedding at first, but in 1952, when she became pregnant with her second child, she was dismissed from her position. The marriage lasted from 1946 to 1969, and it had been described as a battlefield. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. I don't know a lot about their marriage, actually. Oh, I'm going to talk about it. It's... It's not a pleasant one, Uh-oh. but somehow they still had three kids. Uh, they had Daniel, who was born in 1948, Jonathan in 1952, and Emily in 1956. All three of these kids have gone on to be like doctors or humanitarians, and like they've all gone on to do wonderful things. Their middle child, Jonathan, remembers watching Friday night fight night between his parents, where he would sit on the stairs and watch them begin fighting with each other. They were both really heavy drinkers, so things would escalate really quickly. Uh, oh, the 50s and 60s. Oh, you know? yeah. Just whiskey all day. Whiskey all day. And then it was just like normal for your kids to watch your parents beat the crap out of each other because it was definitely a very, very abusive relationship on both sides. Betty's biographer says the marriage was, quote, truly appalling, progressing from broken China to physical abuse. Yet she loved Carl. They fed each other's neuroses perfectly. Oh, gross. You know, I hate this because I feel like I grew up romanticizing relationships like that. Yeah. That like, oh, you need to have passion, right? Like, that's what passion is. It's just like, I love you. I hate you. It's like, oh, God, who has the energy? Oh, God, I don't. No, me neither. I'm tired. In the long term, it's exhausting. Yeah. That's not a way to live life. Which I guess is why they got divorced. Yeah, but I mean, they were together for like 23 years. That's a long time to be going through something like that. When she was interviewed about the domestic abuse, she responded, well, don't make too much of that. He is no wife beater and I was no passive victim. We were both hot tempered people. Cool. Unfortunately, he was bigger than me. So even if I started it, I would end up with the bruises. My daughter, the doctor, does not think I should make statements on domestic violence because I don't know the literature. But in my instance, it's all wrong to characterize my stormy marriage as any business of beating and victim. I am certainly a stormy person. Oh, I don't like that. I know. Oh, God, I just feel for her daughter because you know that her daughter is just like, Mom. Yeah, you can't talk on this stuff if you don't really know. And especially her daughter is probably looking at what her parents' marriage was and being like, that was abusive. No, it was abusive. Yeah. And probably psychologically, mentally, emotionally, super damaging to the children. 100%. Yeah. 100%. After they divorced, she carried on with an affair with a married man for the next 10 years. Oh, Jesus. Yes. Who never left the wife. So... Cool. Didn't, it didn't end very well for Betty in that situation. Well, maybe she didn't want him to. I don't know. I don't know. It seemed like she was a little bit upset by it, but I'm not really sure. When discussing her divorce, she says it was the hardest thing she ever did, even harder than starting the women's movement. All right. Crickets. Crickets. <laughs> crickets. So let's talk about how the feminine mystique came to be, shall we? When she attended her 15th college reunion in 1957, ever the psychology student Betty conducted a survey of college graduates focusing on their education, subsequent experiences, and satisfaction with their current lives. It was out of these interviews that the feminine mystique was born. 
Next, she began to work as a freelance writer, writing about something she called the problem with no name, receiving passionate responses from housewives that no longer felt alone. Because of its success, she decided to rework her articles into a book that she would call The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963. The Feminine Mystique told women that they weren't alone in being dissatisfied with their domestic lives as housewives. Things like this were not always openly discussed among women, and I can only imagine the feeling of relief in knowing that other people have experienced the same thing that I had, and they're brave enough to talk about it openly. And that's why Betty was popular among the middle, upper-class, white society, because it was very true for a lot of these women at the time that they had desires to go out and have a job of their own and live more outside of the home, but it wasn't something that could be discussed without them being made feel, to feel bad about wanting to have right. more life than their husband and children. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely makes sense why this took off. And yeah. unfortunately, it absolutely makes sense why this was the catalyst for the women's movement yeah. because it was talking to uh, women of means, oftentimes, white women of some means in general, you know, and they just have more power. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They were the groups of people that had more power and the money and maybe the more well-off husbands that would give into this new thing they wanted to do. You know what I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. The the opportunities for them were more present than there would be for any other group of people. So while the book was very, very popular with a lot of groups of people, there was some immediate criticism of the book. One reviewer pointed out how similar it was to Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which was first published in English a decade earlier. And Mm -hmm. they are very, very similar It was also criticized for its homophobic language, as well as its comparisons between housewives and concentration camp victims. Oi, Betty. Yeah, Betty. I mean, even like, Betty, you are a Jewish woman who fights against anti-Semitism. What is the obsession with comparing things to Holocaust survivors or concentration camps? Like, why? I think because in our minds, that was like the worst of the worst. So if you compare something to that, it gives it that same like, weight. weight. Yeah, it's it's gross. We it need is. to stop doing that because it's something that happens with everything. I mean, we're seeing it with the anti-vax movement right now, yeah. right? Like comparing yourself to, you know, to a politi- Jewish to a people prisoner. during the yeah. Holocaust. And it's like, what? Stop it. Yeah. Stop it. No, it isn't. Yeah. It's manipulative. In my opinion, I think it's, it's extremely manipulative. Yeah. This reminds me of that um, Michelle Wolf bit where she's talking about like they're like the white feminism and yeah. how they're like underneath a duvet. It's like very hard to start a revolution underneath a duvet. And you're like, sometimes people are mad at me. And like that's <laughs> kind of sometimes I don't get what I want. You yeah. know, like that's not comparable. Yes. I, I, look, it's oppression. Absolutely. And it yes. needs to be addressed but and talked about comparable, but it's not comparable no. to the Holocaust. So, yeah. I'm glad she was called out on that immediately. And it is rather surprising to me, especially since she has spent so much of her life, you know, advocating for anti-Semitism and things like that. I'm like, you should be able to see that this is kind of weird that yeah. you're, that yeah, you're yeah. making this comparison. Right. So as we should all know by now, if you've listened to us for a while, that the biggest criticism is that the feminine mystique omitted black and lower status women from its text. She claimed that working class women were too busy working in factories to start a revolution, which is why she felt it was best for the middle class women to smash that empty image. Okay. She's like, no, no, no. The lower class, they don't have time for a revolution. We got it. We've got the time and the money. So we're the ones that are going to take this charge for them and listen 
<laughs> I appreciate the initiative. I do. But the thing is, don't make it act. Don't make it sound like this is some kind of like selfless act on your part. Like, yeah. it's not like you were doing it on behalf of the working woman. Like you were doing it on behalf of of you of you and women like you. Yeah. But she had this very like grandiose idea of what she was doing, even though I think that it was very self-serving in her ideas. She had this idea that she wanted to create like the NAACP for women. And that was actually something she had said. It was very comparable to that. Yet she continually over and over again through the years would deny black men and women space in her groups and in conversations. So, while she admired the civil rights movement, she didn't want to involve black and brown people in any part of her new women's movement because she didn't believe that we had, much like the first wave, we had enough space for all of those issues. Same thing goes for, you know, lesbians and things like that. There wasn't enough room in her mind. For Sorry, everything. we can only handle one issue right now. Yes, and yeah. we're just going to focus on white women getting jobs and getting out of the house. And anything else that you have a problem with is just going to have to wait. It's not important enough, essentially. So in 1966, Betty co-founded and became the first president of the National Organization for Women, which is now. There was no real media presence and attendance at its founding event, but it was mentioned in the women's section below a story whose headline read, How to Cook Your Thanksgiving Turkey. Which I think is really Well, you know, useless, useless, useful information um, to know how to cook a turkey. However... And And then right below it, there's like, oh, and by the way, there's now this thing called Now... And these women are after you're done cooking your Thanksgiving turkey. I don't know. Maybe give it a look. See, give it a don't. I mean, I guess Google didn't exist then, but whatever. So its popularity grew so much because of Betty's ability to put herself in the spotlight. Her biographer wrote, it was much Betty muscling in on the hierarchy, putting herself in a position of power. Underlying that instinct is a fear that if she's not number one, she's nothing. Oh, that like deep perfectionism. Yep. I feel it. Yes. In my soul. Yes. But at the same time, like it's so funny because one thing that's also criticized about Betty Friedan is that she's just not a team player. She doesn't know how to share the stage with people. And I get that in a lot of ways because that's why I hated team sports growing up. But it was more so because I didn't want to be responsible. Like if I failed, I didn't want my failures to affect other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that was kind of where the selfishness came from. But then when I think about working with other people and that's what makes me more educated on things when I talk to people who are different than me rather than just saying no I'm gonna do this all by myself because my way is best right which that's what it sounds like she's doing it's, it's very controlling it's, totally it's about what she not did. not wanting to give up any control yeah because yeah. Polly Murray even actually wrote the initial statement for the National Organization for Women and was part of the organization for a little bit but left rather quickly because of the way that Betty treated the black and brown people within the movement. Yeah, I mean, and we talked a lot about it when we did our Lavender Menace episode where it was just like she would constantly step in and try and speak over people because no one's ideas were as good as hers. Exactly. Yeah. Under Betty's presidency, now advocated for the legal equality of women and men, including the enforcement of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Pay Act of 1963. But much like everything Betty did, she always had a blind spot. 
While she worked to enforce Chapter 7 of the Civil Rights Act, which makes it unlawful for federal agencies to discriminate against employees and job applicants based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, or age, she focused mainly on ensuring jobs for women, but not all the people protected under the act. The group's black members disagreed with Betty and believed that the vast number of black men and women who lived below the poverty line needed more job opportunities than women within the middle and upper classes. With the majority obviously against her, she stepped down as president of now in 1969. I I find that interesting as well that she would rather step down than yeah. like maybe for a minute think that like, hey, Maybe my ideas aren't working. Maybe they're outdated. Maybe I need to progress in my thinking in some way. She'd rather just be like, nope, I'm right. Y'all are wrong. Deuces. Yeah, and I didn't write this quote down, but in her own words, she talks about her amazing ability to create organizations and to found things like that, but her inability to continue on with them and how she she's there to be the movement maker. And I don't no, know. I'm sorry. It's so bizarre. That's, it's, that's very annoying because I've known a lot of people like that. Like it is relatively easy to start things. Like right. I'm not saying that what she did to start now was easy. Like I'm not saying that any of that was easy or starting these organizations was just like a walk in the park. I'm not saying that, but like it is always more difficult to sustain things. Yes. It's always more difficult to complete things like than it is to just get things started. I have I a agree. million half finished projects in my closet. Of course. Okay. Like there's 18 unfinished crocheted blankets. Oh, all right. Yeah. Oh my God. If I had a nickel for how many uncrocheted blankets and uh-huh. unfinished embroidery projects and so many things. Yeah. She, and she's so to say, so to say like, this is what I'm good at is starting things and I don't have to finish them because what I'm good at is starting things. It's like, no, I mean, sure, you might be good at starting things, but instead of phrasing it like that, why not phrase it like I could be better at yeah. this other thing? I think it speaks to where she's at mentally. Oh, totally. You know, totally, totally. Well, and then also it's like she came with this whole background. I can't remember why I thought of this when we were talking, but I just remembered I wanted to say she came with this whole background already of like being a writer and having all of those prospects already set up for her. So I think this is what I meant. Okay. So I think like starting those things was easy for her because she already did have some contacts and she was reputable in the leftist, you know, journalism scene and things like that, where, which is very cool, which is super cool. And it's amazing that she had that ability to get where she was, but instead of bringing everybody with her, she wanted to kind of stay at the top by herself. Yeah. 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 You need to know what your strengths are when you start an organization and share in leadership, right? Like I'm good at this thing. I have these contexts, so I will be the founder and head of this thing. And then you bring somebody else in to be like, okay, you can lead the lavender menace of, of now. Right. You're like, this is something that you have more knowledge on. This is something you're better at. So we could use you for this. It's not like one person has to be in control of everything because then that is making the movement smaller too, you know? And one of the things that Betty really struggled with was like not being the young hot thing anymore. When the feminine mystique came out, she was like, the feminist goddess, you know what I mean? Like she was everything and everybody looked up to her. And now there were these other activists coming up and a who lot are more of radical. Yeah. Activists who were more radical and had newer ideas, different ideas for where they wanted the movement to go. And Betty was totally uncomfortable with all of that. 
At this point, she was 47 years old in the middle of a divorce and pushed out of the organization that she had founded. She often found herself in fights with younger, more radical feminists who were growing impatient with her racism, her defense of men, her refusal to support lesbians, and her temper. There was one woman in particular that seemed to be Betty's true nemesis, or frenemy, I guess, Gloria Steinem. Yeah. She was everything that Betty wasn't. Gloria was slim, pretty, chic, and diplomatic, friends with the Kennedys, millionaires, and Hollywood directors. She was cool and modern, and a lot of women were very drawn to her. So this was something where Betty was like this... I guess now seen as older. Kind of more dowdy matronly figure. She was super crotchety and had this awful temper and wasn't warm and wasn't one that you could sit and have conversations with. And when I covered Gloria Steinem like a year or two ago or Mm -hmm. whenever it was, like that was one thing that people always say about her is that she had a presence about her. She's charismatic. Yeah. Yeah. But she also had this way of making you feel very comforted and safe in her space when you were around her. Yeah. Where I don't, think Betty Friedan had that ability with people she was very like amazing at getting mad and getting her point across when it needed to get across but she didn't have that sensitivity and that empathy that I think a lot of the other younger activists coming up which again different people have different strengths it's why everybody should be working together yeah Yeah, exactly. So we've done a whole episode on the Lavender Menace, so I'm not going to talk about it too much, but I do want to talk about it in accordance to Betty for Dan. So she was not for women coming out in now. She didn't want it to be known that there were lesbians in now, like we discussed, because she was afraid that the whole movement would become this man-hating lesbian kind of movement. And that was one of the issues, like I said, is that she would come to the defense of men quite often. And that was something that a lot of these younger feminists weren't cool with because it wasn't always in the defense of the right things, right? Right. I feel like Betty Friedan did a lot of like hand holding with men, right? Where she was just like, they just don't understand, you know, where I think a lot of like more radical feminists at the time were like, no, like we don't need to have that kind of patience. Yeah. And we don't need to have their like, okay with what we're doing. Where I think that we don't need their sign off. Yeah. and Yeah. And it was kind of like that in the first wave as well, where it was like, you wanted some feminists like wanted men on their side and they wanted to be seen in a certain light so that men would be okay with the movement as well, rather than being okay with men being uncomfortable with what they're discussing in order to make change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. She wanted to rely on the patriarchy to get shit done still. So let's go back a little bit more into Betty's lesbian politics. Growing up in Peoria, Illinois, she only knew one gay man, which she discussed in her, in her 2001 book, Life So Far, a Memoir. In it, she said, the whole idea of homosexuality made me profoundly uneasy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that sounds about right for her the time that she was growing up in. Yeah, exactly. And she does later call herself a square at the time, but she still believed that a person's sexuality did not have a place in the women's movement, which was for white women who wanted jobs, obviously. That's not what she said. That's oh, what I was I'm like, saying. I was like, she didn't say that, did she? <laughs> no, no I was she like, she's well be, like, very self-aware. <laughs> like, look, this is, this movement is for white women that want to get jobs. This movement is not for the lesbian that wants, you know, familial rights and rights to marry and all of right. these other things. That's not what it's about. She said, homosexuality is not, in my opinion, what the women's movement is all about. And she once also refused to wear a purple armband as an act of political solidarity with the lesbian movement. 
1977, at the National Women's Conference, she seconded a lesbian's rights resolution, and she says, which everyone thought I would oppose, in order to end the debate and move on to the issues she felt were more important. Okay, do you want, like, what? You want a standing O for Pretty that? Pretty much. She's like, look, I voted yes on this thing. Now can we talk about what I wanted to talk about? Is essentially what yeah, she Yeah, can we move her. on? It's so awful. It's- it is. Like, here's the thing. Again, I, I don't want this episode to come across as though we're being, like, just super... Well, I'm, I'm mentioning all of the negative things. Right, right. Like, of course. Like, that's what a, this is it about. It would be a very long episode if I mentioned all the positive things right. as well. But this is That's what this is a, episode is about, is, like, you know, talking about those things. Um, so I don't want it to come across as though we're, we're just strictly like, boo, you know, I feel pretty boo right now, but but. (laughs) she does very much feel like that, like that, like aunt that you avoid at like holidays. Yes. Like that uber opinionated aunt that has no basis in anything that she's arguing about. Yelling over everybody. Oh my God. I have an aunt like that. Yeah. Like that's what this person sounds like. And it seems like insufferable. Like it would be so obnoxious yeah you know because it really does feel like this is the type of person who's just like you know what no my opinions are the most important I'll never admit that I was wrong about anything uh you know and it's just like ah she seems insufferable honestly like and and this is the thing I'm not taking away all the great things that she did for the movement and starting it or whatever but (laughs) she is an insufferable unsufferable human being like she just I couldn't I could not work with her as a person like she she is everything that I cannot stand about a human I feel like just the entitlement and the ego like I just can't right like and also you know we've moved into a place I hope as a society where we're moving more towards like normalize admitting when you're wrong right and listening and changing and evolving and it seems like those are things that she's really not good at or comfortable with no and she really doesn't care to change that about herself at all either yeah because she doesn't think anything's wrong with her yeah so originally she wasn't as keen about having abortion being a main topic in the women's movement but in the early 70s that changed a little bit when she co-founded the National Association to Repeal Abortion Laws or NARL which in my opinion is not quite as catchy as now. It is not. Not at all. But Narl, kind of funny. It kind of sounds like narwhal. It kind of to me it sounds like snarl which Ooh. I kind of like cuz it's like snarl aggressive. Snarl would have been cool. Right. They should have added like something in, in, S in the before, front, yeah. you know? Mm, would have been good. But that was actually pretty progressive at the time because even Planned Parenthood wasn't even super involved in making abortion about a woman's woman's choice. Betty received death threats after speaking on abortion, which led to her canceling a number of events. But in 1980, her views on abortion seemed to have changed a bit. She felt that it shouldn't be the feminist movement's sole focus as she saw it had been and believed that abortion should be in the context of, quote, the choice to have children, a formulation supported by some Catholic priests who worked in the White House. In 2000, she wrote in referring to now, or sorry, Narrell, there is far too much focus on abortion. In recent years, I've gotten a little uneasy about the movement's narrow focus on abortion as if it were the single all-important issue for women when it's not. Okay. But yet you started a whole movement for, I just, it, I don't know. Well, I mean, and it is a big one. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe not talking about abortion specifically, although that was something very important to talk about because of the illegality of yeah. it for so long, but like women's reproductive rights and rights of their own bodies is massively important in the women's movement. I mean, I would say even for middle-class 
white housewives Definitely. like being Definitely. able to make those decisions especially you know for people who are within families right like people being able to decide families and people who are like now working in a movement where maybe if Betty were to get pregnant she would have to make those decisions for herself and again mentioning Gloria Steinem if you remember her story you know she had an abortion shortly before she started you know, working in the feminist movement. And it was a really, really positive experience for her. And she thanks her abortionist for helping her go on to live the rest of her life and helping her live the life that she saw for herself. And so that was something that these younger feminists, because they were also seeing so many of their friends dying from these botched Mm -hmm. abortions. My mom would tell me that when she was in high school, there were a few girls that just like stopped showing up to school and it was found out later on that they had died during botched abortions. Like it was so, so common. So I think it was almost another one of those things that Betty half wanted to jump on the bandwagon for, but half felt like because again it she wasn't didn't want her that initial criticism idea. right yeah but because it wasn't her initial idea mm. of what she wanted yeah, yeah. accomplished she still felt like well if my original goal isn't accomplished we can't focus on yeah that. she gets bitter that like they didn't address my thing first so right. I can't get on board with this thing that they're doing now yeah. yeah instead of seeing that all of these other things that are being added are actually interconnected helping you move toward your original goal as yeah. well right yeah I mean and again like I think one of the main issues we have with the first or the second wave is the lack of intersectionality and the understanding that everything is interconnected. Like all of these systems of oppression, all of these things, um, common experiences that women are, you know, women identifying people go through are, are interconnected and compound the oppression and compound the difficulty that we experience as women, you know, like, you have to recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this was the time where that really wasn't recognized at all. So after Betty stepped down from now, she, Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem founded the National Women's Political Caucus. And this partnership would turn out to be rather unpleasant in the coming years as well. So let's talk a little bit about the Equal Rights Amendment. It was first proposed at the National Women's Political Party in 1923. The Equal Rights Amendment was to provide legal equality for the sexes and prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. But it wasn't until the 1960s, during the second wave of feminism, that the amendment was introduced to Congress. Betty, along with Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm and many other activists worked hard to eventually get the ERA passed, but it wasn't without its own brand of drama and infighting. Another person we've discussed on this podcast before, Shirley Chisholm, became the first black woman elected to Congress uh, and then ran for president in 1972. Gloria, Bella, and Betty all appeared to support Shirley Chisholm and her bid for president, but as time wore on, their decision began to waver. When Betty was acting as a delegate for Shirley's campaign, she promised to host a, wait for it, Mm. traveling watermelon feast. (gasps) No. Oh, no. Why? I don't know, but it's so racist. It's so awful. Oh, why? I know. I know. I know. (laughs) I know. Oh, no. And honestly, like I was, I had finished my notes and then I was like, oh, well, there's like one article that I had like kind of read, but didn't finish. I'm like, let me see if there's anything I missed. And You're like, uh, gold missed. must be mentioned. Ah, it hurt. Like it hurts me to even like say that she said that. Oh. I just, I just want to be a fly in the wall, on, uh, a fly on the wall in that meeting between her and Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Shirley's just, just like eyes I bet got so wide and she's like looking at like 
the other people in her campaign like, did you hear this bitch? Did you? Yeah, did she's this bitch like, just say okay, that? Okay, I hear you, Betty. Um, but <laughs> let's talk a different type of food, maybe. Yeah, we're like, gonna do the, go the food route. Hear it. Great. Let's rework it, maybe like just a little bit. Let's, uh, let's rework it in the comedy shop a few more times. Actually, if it, if it knowing Shirley Chisholm, she was just out and out like, what the fuck? Like, that's probably either that or just straight up stood up and walked out the door. Just yeah, like, I've heard enough. Yeah. Eventually, her distaste for her fellow feminists hit the main stage and Betty publicly accused Abzug and Gloria for destroying the movement with radical politics. Ah, those darn radical feminists. Youths. Which I would even say that Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzig wouldn't even weren't even like that radical in my opinion. By today's standards, no. But even by like remember we're talking about like Shulamith Firestone and things oh, like yeah. that? Like those are the same eras and I don't consider Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug to be in On that the same, same level. level of yeah. like radical politics. If you really think about like radical feminism. All right. After that, Betty became a Zionist and fought to expose anti-Semitism in the women's movement. She also wanted to make that extra push for the ERA to pass, so she published The Second Stage in 1981. Let's just say this book was not very popular. It contains many hard-to-read passages railing against rape victims and anti-porn feminists. (laughs) I can't even move on yet. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I... My head did a very involuntary, like, uh, like jerk tilt, like, like a dog's head, like what? Yeah, like just trying to compute. Yeah, I couldn't. I, after I read that, I was like, no, I can't. Can move you? On. Can you re say that sentence? So yeah. So this is what it said in the New York Times article. It said many hard to read passages railing against rape victims. Okay, rape victims and anti-porn feminists. Comma. Railing against anti-porn feminists. I guess. And rape victims. And rape victims. Okay. I'm not quite sure. I'm just trying to absorb we're, it. We're just, this is Fine. what it said. I don't know. Um, and around this time as well, when she published the second book, feminists began blaming her for ruining the movement. Simone de Beauvoir even threw the book across the room when she read it, according to her biographer. Let's talk a bit about Betty's legacy, shall we? Until almost the end of her life, Betty continued to complain about how women had not reached equality. She says that the revolution isn't over because, in some cases, women contribute to 50% of the household income, but do men do 50% of the housework? Do men do 50% of the childcare? The New York Times obituary for Betty noted that she was famously abrasive and that she could be thin-skinned and imperious. <laughs> Subject. I love obituaries where they're like, okay... We need to honor this person's life, but also we need to tell the truth. But how are we going to do this delicately? (laughs) You know, she was also subject to screaming fits of temperament. That being in my obituary. Hilarious. Mine's just going to be she was a loud ass bitch. (laughs) And that's all that needs to be said about me. Goals. Her ex-husband, Carl Ferdan, once said of Betty, she changed the course of history almost single handedly. It took a driven, super aggressive, egocentric, almost <laughs> lunatic dynamo to rock the world the way she did. I'm not going to lie. I kind of love that, though, actually. Unfortunately, she was the same person at home where that kind of conduct <laughs> doesn't work. She simply never understood this. <laughs> that being the thing that someone says when you when you die. Like, that was her ex-husband. Wow. 
Oh, and you know what, really? Betty could not have said it better herself than in her book, Life So Far. The truth is, I've always been a bad-tempered bitch. Some people say that I have mellowed some. I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's Betty for death. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, incredible. I kind of want to read just that very last quote one more time. Almost by her lunatic husband. is just chef's kiss. It took a driven, super aggressive, egocentric, almost lunatic dynamo to rock the world the way she did. It's like so complimentary <laughs> and so like aggressive. She was pretty aggressive. They're like, he's like, she's amazing, but she was insane. She, like, <laughs> but she was fucking crazy. She made my life a living hell. But you know what? If she made life better for some people. But she got shit whatever. done. That's the thing. She I, did. You know, I really feel like that. It's that quote, like but bitches she, get shit done. But she could have gotten so much more Agree. done. And that's what's so frustrating about Betty for Dan, because she was so smart. She had the people behind her that were backing her up. She had the political pocket. You know what I mean? Like she was in in this caucus at the White House where she did have so much influence. She lacks diplomacy, yes. which is a very important skill. Yeah. If you're working with any organization, it is so important to be diplomatic. Yeah. You know, not kowtow to other people, but like you have to know how to talk with and work with other people. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest thing about her is that if she would have taken the time to understand what other people's existences were like, maybe she could have stayed in the movement longer and stayed at the top of the movement longer than really. I mean, it was like four years since the feminine mystique had been out that she w dropped out of now. That's not a very long time no, to be like at the it top is not of at all. Game. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for four years, as we've mentioned a couple yeah. times on this episode. So, yeah. yeah, no, it is not a it's very not long that time long. And, and she was so easy to give up on things. from the founding of an organization. That's a baby, yeah. baby, baby organization. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Wow. I gotta pee. <laughs> Me too. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, so I am going to be talking about somebody who is very 
controversial, especially lately. I feel okay. like it's very controversial, but along the same lines as Betty Friedan, uh, let's talk about Margaret Sanger. Oh, that's okay. a great one. Whoo-wee. Ooh. I'm like sweating. I'm like nervous about this to talk about her. Um, because it's complicated, yes. right? Like it's extremely complicated. Uh, Margaret Sanger was a birth control activist, sex educator, writer, and nurse. Mm-hmm. She popularized the term birth control, opened the first birth control clinic in the United States, and established organizations that evolved into Planned Parenthood. Um, but she was also a major eugenics advocate yes. uh, with a lot of racist undertones. So, Which doesn't go well with reproductive health, in my opinion. Well, Eugenics and reproductive right. health. Right. Okay. We'll get into it. All Let's right. Let's do it. So she was born Margaret Louise Higgins in 1879 in Corning, New York, to Irish Catholic parents, mm-hmm. Michael Hennessy Higgins and <laughs> Anne Hennessy. Hennessy Higgins. I know. Uh, <laughs> Um, and of course, it's fucking Hennessy. Of course, yeah. It's Hennessy. Yeah. How Irish could you get? Yeah. And Anne Purcell Higgins. So her mom was basically pregnant her entire childhood. Oh, my God. We've talked about women like this on yeah. the show before, where it's like they come with 12 siblings and mom was pregnant for yeah. like 10 years straight. Oh, yeah. Listen, in the 22 years that she was married to Margaret's father, she conceived 18 times. 22 years. She conceived 18 times. How many kids did she actually have? 11. So she had 11 children before passing away at the age of 49. Okay, but honestly, again, that's the most Irish Catholic thing I've ever heard. Like, I've mentioned on this show before, the siblings that would go to my middle school, which was like the Latin mass speaking, like hardcore Catholic middle school. Yeah. Like, I, the fact that I was an only child was like shocking. It was weird because everybody like in Catholicism, it is your duty to make more Catholics. But you know, birth control is a sin. The thing that was funny though, is that her father was a self-proclaimed atheist. I don't know about her mom, but her father, although born Irish Catholic, both of her parents were, her father was a self-proclaimed atheist, women's rights activist, and free public education advocate. Interesting. I would like to know more about her mother, especially yeah. if her father is all of those things. Because to me, everything you've just said, especially about the number of children, right. maybe there, you know, I think that there's some stuff that maybe doesn't leave you. I think that there could yeah. still be this idea that using birth control or any sort of method of birth control is seen as not the way life is intended yeah. god has intended however you want to see well, it well and some people just want big families like that's also true like some people just want a lot of kids crazy you know people. i agree how do you get anything done could not agree more um <laughs> but you know some people are just like that and some some women really like being pregnant that's also a thing sounds awful to me personally i was gonna say never been through it couldn't say i feel like i wouldn't want to have to give up Drinking and smoking and lots of things for nine months out of my life. Well, basically her entire adult life. Like, when did she ever? Because she was... She never had any fun. Although, I guess people still drank and smoked during pregnancies back then. Actually, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think I was reading to... I was listening to a podcast that where they were talking about... I want to say it was Ireland, actually. Like, way, way, way back when, there was no drinking water. There was no irrigation system. So it was essentially women all day while taking care of the kids would be, like, brewing beer. And that's what they would have to drink instead of water. Even when they're pregnant. But, like, it wasn't, like... 
the kind of beer that we drink that like tastes good. It's just like brewed during the day by your wife. I mean, there are pictures of my grandma smoking while she's pregnant with my uncle. And uh, that was in the 50s. So I, I don't know. Um, I mean, there you have it, folks. But her <laughs> father <times> changed. <laughs> her father seemed to be pretty uh, progressive, definitely for the time. But he also, also, I read about this. I didn't write it in my notes, but I was like, Jesus. What? He immigrated to the United States and then immediately kind of like joined the Civil War as a drummer at fifteen. I was oh like, oh, God. poor baby. Uh, but he wanted to be a drummer for the war. Yeah, he was like a drummer for the war at 15. I mean, if I had to fight in the war, I would definitely want to be in like the war band. Yeah, good gig. You know? Yeah. Um, but after he left the army, he went on to study phrenology um, in his early adulthood. What now, is that? Phrenology is a pseudoscience. I think there's a stuff you should know episode on it uh but it involves the measurement of the bumps of the skull there's also a lore episode on it um and the reason why it gets discussed often yeah. nowadays is because it's often been used by white supremacists to justify the superiority of the european race so you would look at the shape of the skull and the development of the skull and it would tell you specific traits so they also used it in a sexist way because they would say women tend to have like larger backs of the skulls and flatter fronts which means that like a certain part of the brain is less developed right oh. so it was used in a very racist way to look at when comparing the traits of um like african skulls skulls from africa and right skulls from Europe, they would look at that and they would say, oh, you know, the African is clearly less smart, because less evolved. Because the back evolved. of the skull was bigger than like the front of the skull. Or that's what they use for women, but it, I don't know yeah. exactly what I they use. I have a lot of ridges on the back of my head. Do you have a lot of, like mine's like bump, 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 bump. I feel like I do. I feel like that's why I I am scared to shave my head ever. Like I think it's a weird shape. You know? I mean, when my hair was really short, you could never see that. It's just like the feeling. Maybe it's just like muscle knots in my skull. I don't know. I don't know. But many phrenologists believed that you could rank races from most to least evolved based on common traits found in their skull development, shape, and size. So guess which race was considered to be the least evolved? Hmm, I don't know. Right? So um, in case you didn't get that, it was African races. Oh my gosh, thank you. I didn't know. <laughs> I mentioned these things about Margaret's parents because I think that helped to deeply shape who she was. She had a mom who was yeah. pregnant all the time. Her dad, while very progressive in many, many ways, and Margaret was considered very progressive in many, many ways, also studied this science that we now know had a lot of very racist undertones um, yeah. and origins, right? I mean, it sounds like she's definitely a product of her parents. Yeah, right? In every sense of it. She became a nurse practitioner in 1900 before marrying architect William Sanger in 1902, with whom she had three children. After their home in Westchester, New York burned down, the family relocated to New York City, where Margaret began working as a nurse in lower-income neighborhoods in, on the east side of New York. Mm -hmm. So the couple quickly became involved in left-wing and socialist circles, with Margaret joining the Women's Committee of the New York Socialist Party. So they were very, very active in this scene, this mm -hmm. very progressive New York scene in the early 1900s. Yeah. Her, um, she had very left-wing political interests and also was kind of developing herself as a feminist. Uh, and her nursing experience led her to write 
two series of columns on sex education, which were titled What Every Mother Should Know and What Every Girl Should Know for the socialist magazine, The New York Call. That's cool. It's very cool. Um, By the standards of the day, her articles were extremely frank in their discussions of sexuality. And there were a lot of New York Call readers who were outraged by it. Oh, I bet. There were also a lot of readers who were like, thank you for having these conversations. Right. But I mean, and also you're thinking about the fact this is coming from a nurse. She is probably someone that's going to be very frank and very like particular with her words and use proper terminology and things like that, where I think that that can come off as being very like abrasive to people who aren't used to discussing things like sex. Right. I mean, and I think that there was a lot of frustration probably with Margaret because she was working in these mostly immigrant neighborhoods on the east side. And she often witnessed women undergoing high risk, frequent pregnancies, like being pregnant all the time, having miscarriages all the time and a lot of self-induced abortions. Because we discussed this, I think, in our birth control episode, but access to contraceptive information was prohibited on the grounds of obscenity. Um, Yeah by the 1873 federal Comstock law and a host of other state laws. So every state had their own laws about what could or couldn't be spread. Yeah. Um, When she attempted to find any information to share with the people in these neighborhoods at local libraries, there was nothing to be found. Right. And she talks about an experience she had where she was with a woman with a doctor and this woman like, almost died from a self-induced abortion attempt. And she asked the doctor, like, what can I do to avoid this? And the doctor basically told her, there's not abstain from sex. There's nothing you can do. Um, And then that woman later died from another self-induced abortion Mm. attempt. Um, So she's watching this happen frequently. And then she also took in a niece who had been abandoned in a snowbank as an infant oh my because gosh. their parent didn't want them. Oh my gosh. Uh, so she made a commitment to bring sex education to underprivileged and working women. Yeah. Everything's great so yes. far, right? Things are good. And honestly, it's something that people today need to understand more as well. Like that experience of understanding why birth control is important, why sex education is important, because we're still trying to get those same points across today, I feel like. Right, because surprisingly, maybe to some, Margaret was actually opposed to abortion, but primarily as a societal ill and a public health problem. Like she was like, this is a real issue. Because there was no safe abortion at that time. And also I think that there could potentially maybe have been the idea in her head that if there was another method of birth control, abortion wouldn't need to exist. That's exactly right. So that's exactly right. She was like, I am opposed to abortion because this is something that wouldn't need to exist if we could prevent unwanted pregnancy in the first place, right? In 1914, she launched the Women Re- the Woman Rebel, which was an eight-page monthly newsletter which promoted contraception using the slogan, No Gods, No Masters, which Ooh, I think is badass sounding. That's like very catchy. Like if yeah. I saw that, I'd be like, whoa, Ooh, what? what's that? Yeah. That. So she was collaborating with anarchist friends and they popular pop popularized the term birth control as a more candid alternative to other phrases like family limitation, which is what they were using before. Yeah, Birth control sounds a lot more like chill, you know? Yeah. Uh, and she did believe, and she believed and continued to reiterate throughout her life and her career, that each woman should be, quote, the absolute mistress of her own body. Mm-hmm. So, again, all of this is great. Uh, she was arrested um, 
because she was continuing continuing to spread the publication of family limitation yeah. and other other things that challenged birth control laws. It was a 16-page pamphlet which contained details and precise information and graphic descriptions of various contraceptive methods because yeah. that's how you have to talk to people. Right. How else are people going to know what to do if you don't spell it out for them? <laughs> so she was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws and um, rather than stand trial, she was like deuces and she went to England. Don't blame you. So it was while in England that we kind of see the first inklings of eugenics sort of creep up. And I do want to say, and I've, I put it on our list of topics to do in the future, because the like late mid 1910s, like through the 30s, eugenics was a very popular thing to talk about. And it was yeah. a very popular kind of mindset to have um on both sides of the aisle, whether you were like very progressive or very conservative. Right. Um, it was a thing that a lot of people believed in right. at, at the time. Um, and having it not being seen as something negative and racist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they Espe- just didn't- Especially because like the left and the socialists were like, yes, eugenics, good. Right. <laughs> they believed in, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but they believed in negative eugenics, right? So Margaret Sanger absolutely disavowed what the Nazis were doing, right? Where it was just like actively going out and like slaughtering populations. Right. But she believed in the form of eugenics where if we can just stop populations from having children, then, yes. you know, we can improve yes. s- society, which is, is not great. Not, um, not good. So this was during the First World War, and Margaret expressed concern that overpopulation, especially among the lower classes, led to poverty, famine, and war. On October 16th, 1916, she opened a family planning and birth control clinic at 46 Amboy Street uh, in Brooklyn, and this was the first of its kind. So it's not even really legal, right? She's back in the United States. This stuff is like not even really legal. Is she still like wanted when she comes back to the United States? You know what? I didn't even see anything about that. I don't know what happened when she came back because she was very much in the public eye like when she got back, so... I don't know if they dropped the charges or uh, what happened with know. that. Oh, no, it's right here. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Nine days after the clinic opened, Sanger was arrested. There, there we, we go. go. <laughs> so she was convicted. The trial judge held that women did not have, quote, the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting conception. Ooh. They're like, women should always be afraid that they're going to get pregnant. <laughs> That's really... That's what he's saying, basically. <laughs> he just looked at me. <laughs> Women should always be afraid. <laughs> yeah, they should have that fear in I them mean, at all times. I mean, we are anyways. We are always afraid. Even with birth control and condoms and everything else, we're still afraid. We're still fucking afraid yeah. always. Always. <laughs> Literally always. Uh, she was offered a more lenient sentence if she promised not to break the law again, but she replied, quote, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. So she's like, I can't give you that promise that I'm never going to break the law again. I would have promised and then broke it anyways. Yeah, she's like, okay. Okay. Um, But she was sentenced 30 days in a workhouse for this. Okay. Yeah. What the fuck? Why'd you even go to England then? Like 30 30 days days in a workhouse? I mean, workhouses were not fun, but it's a month. But it's 30 days. You can get through it. 
so, and actually, it kind of backfired on lawmakers because the publicity surrounding her arrest trial and trial um, sparked birth control activism across the United States. Oh, I'm sure, because all these other people were seeing that and being like, wait, I kind of agree with this person, and I don't agree with the fact that she is being punished yeah. for this. Yeah. yeah. So after World War One, she founded the American Birth Control League, um, or the ABCL, and the founding principles were... We hold that children should be, one, conceived in love, two, born of the mother's conscious desire, three, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception, except when these conditions can be satisfied. So while this is a noble aim in in many ways, although I would say that saying like... um, It just seems like a lot of stipulations on what you should want when you have a child. Yeah. I mean, that's the main issue with a lot of her ideas. I think that, again... It's still very rule-based. I think her ideas are very well-intentioned. Yes. I really do feel like where she's coming from, she's seen a lot of poverty. She's seen what that can do to children and families and women uh, in these situations. So I think it, it, well, it's coming from a good... Well, she's speaking out of experience, right. I think. Yeah, instead of... Uh, taking the time to maybe educate herself on the broader reasons that people have children or maybe don't want children. She's focusing on what she knows, which is smart. I wouldn't want her talking about things she knows nothing about. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. So while this was a noble aim, one of the founding members of the board of directors of the ABCL was Lothrop Stoddard. Terrible name. Uh, Doesn't sound like a pleasant person. He's a Klansman. Oh, well, then. Uh, And he's one of the founding members of the board of directors of this birth control. What what the fuck? Uh, Yeah, the the American Birth Control League. Why was Margaret like, that's cool, come join this thing? So I really think, okay, because he was also an incredibly racist author uh, throughout the 1920s, and Margaret Sanger also spoke at. KKK events she says it in her autobiography like spoke to like the women of the Ku Klux Klan about birth control and she says it like look I was willing to talk to whoever like anybody who was who was willing to help me with my um, mission yeah I I was I was gonna go to whoever was gonna listen to me like she defends but what are does she ever are there other groups that are mentioned that she spoke to that are not well she did and i'll talk about this a little further down she does have a relationship with the naacp okay you know and like definitely worked with them and everything but because that would be my major question if she's saying i'm willing to speak with anyone i still don't think it was smart of her to speak with the kkk but if that was put into action at least she wasn't lying yeah i mean the issue with her because i feel like a lot of people on the right have picked and choose pick and chosen things out of context from things that she has said that sound really, really bad um, when, when out of context. Yeah. But a lot, I don't think that she was overtly racist, right? right? I think that she went along with whoever could help her agenda. And I think in doing that, she let a lot of racist shit slide. Right. Like she Which was willing. Which in turn is kind of making her racist. Right. She was willing to get in bed with people who were overt racist and maybe Which, had very like negative reasons for wanting to help you. you right. Know? But if you're a person who is condoning racism, to me, that means you're racist. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's 
part of the problem. Yeah. Um, so it's around this time that she became more outspoken about her belief that eugenics could benefit the human race. She was a proponent, again, of negative eugenics, which which aimed to improve human hereditary traits through social intervention by reducing the reproduction of those who were considered unfit. So she was also working in immigrant communities and helping these women with childbirth and things like that, mm-hmm. yet she is now saying these are exactly the women that shouldn't be getting pregnant at all. Yes. Yes. Okay. Just want to get that straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, she was very careful not to speak in overtly racist terms. However, many noted that, quote, Sanger quite effortlessly looked the other way when others spouted racist speech. She had no reservations about relying on flawed and overtly racist works to serve her own propaganda needs. Yeah. So it was, it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, man, you're complicit. Yeah. If you're not actively being anti-racist you are complicit in whatever negative repercussions happen from this from this thing so in a new york times article in 1923 margaret said when speaking of birth control it means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements of our society and the gradual suppression elimination and eventual expiration of defective stocks those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. But then this is my question, because then wouldn't she solely be promoting birth control to underprivileged communities? The fact that she is promoting birth control to Klansmen and women and things like that. Mm -hmm. In my head, I would think that she would be saying, no, y'all make babies like crazy because you're the best, greatest stock. Well, there were there were a lot of white supremacists who latched on to that idea, that idea that like, okay. Poor people, um, strictly poor people, immigrants, right? Black people, you know, strictly those people. Um, Margaret Sanger didn't say that because, like, her her whole thing was it is a woman's right to control her body, right? right. So she's willing to get the gospel of birth control out to everyone. However, but then what she, she just said, right? To me, it would seem like she would want to promote it only to underprivileged right. communities when that is her goal, right? I mean, I don't know. She definitely promoted it to everyone, but she had a hyper focus on certain groups. Right. And it was typically underprivileged groups or mentally handicapped groups. Um, And again, like that whole statement, a a lot of people will use it and say she said this specifically about Jewish people and black people, that they were weeds, right? Which when you read the article, she does not attribute that statement to any specific race. However, it's, it's definitely anyone that's not white. It has or or, or I guess, you're, you know, or not like her. It has very racist and classist undertones, right? right? Because like a lot of underprivileged communities still to this day, but especially at this time, were immigrant communities black and brown communities yeah right so who are you talking to exactly you know that's my question who are you talking to so she openly advocated for the compulsory segregation or sterilization for this is her word not mine the profoundly those are her words yeah in a 1921 article, she wrote that, quote, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. She proposed banning immigrants with disabilities and for placing so-called, and this is a quote, 
placing so-called illiterates, paupers, unemployables, criminals, prostitutes, and dope fiends on farms and in open spaces as long as necessary for the strengthening and development of moral conduct. Who talk about good. comparing things to concentration camps? That's it's not we're we're getting real close. That's it's not good. comparable. We're getting real, yeah. real close. Let's just put everybody who's undesirable on a farm, far, yeah. far away from where we don't have to look don't at them. Don't let them interact let's, with upstanding them, communities. And you know what? We're probably going to have them do a lot of work on that farm. They're going to make a lot of food. They're probably not going to get a lot well, of breaks. idle hands and all that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Later, she proposed that permits for parenthood shall be issued upon application by city, county, or state authorities to married couples. So permits to have children. So right? then what so then what happens to the single woman who gets pregnant? She's arrested? I don't know. I don't know. Ugh. And who okay, this is my next question. She wants all of these things. Does she have anybody in her pocket that can actually make these happen? Or is she just spewing? I think she just proposed wants? them. And actually, if I remember correctly from what I read, she did not want an enforceable punishment necessarily. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It's just to discourage people who she didn't, didn't have want the permit. Enforceable punishment, but she wanted an enforceable. Maybe law you would. Permit. Maybe it would be forced birth control or forced sterilization, sterilization in some way for people who didn't have permits. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what her goal was there, but I mean, it didn't come to fruition. Be more clear, Margaret. Yeah. So. Um, she had widespread support amongst prominent African-American leaders in the 20s and 30s, including NAACP co-founder W.E.B. Du Bois, with whom she founded the Birth Control Federation of America. Despite that, many viewed her attempts to distribute birth control specifically to black neighborhoods as a white supremacist act. Totally. In 1939, Sanger wrote an infamous and controversial letter to physician C. C.J. Gamble, in which she outlined her plan to reach out to black leaders, specifically ministers, to help dispel community suspicions about the family planning clinics she was opening in the South. Okay, so in it, she urges him to get over his reluctance to hire a full-time Negro physician as the, quote, colored Negroes can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their cards on the table, which means their ignorance, superstition, and doubt. Mm. quote we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the negro population and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members so this is what i want to do but if we use a black minister to condone this then it won't be known that this is what i want to do when i read that because that is what's used those those snippets are often pulled out as like this is what she was trying to do she was trying to exterminate the negro population right when i read that I read it more as this is her fear of what they're going to think she's doing. Okay. Um, that's that's kind of how I read it. I feel like it was not phrased well um, no. at all. That I feel like she's Again, like... Margaret, be more clear. Please. Right. And, and using things like ignorance and superstition when talking right. about the black community feels very racist. That's super, super racist. Um, yeah. You know, I think what she's saying here is we don't want them to think we're trying to exterminate them. So we need to get somebody, we need to get a black minister to talk to them. I just feel right? like there's a better way of saying that. Absolutely. You could say in order to make these clients feel more comfortable. Yes. And to have, you know, to speak with someone with similar life experiences, I think it would be great if there yes. could be a black minister that could work with me to be a part of this. Like, 
Her That's language is sus. It's bad. It it's really bad. is not good. And it Which has, is why it's hard for me to give her the benefit of the doubt with that, especially yes. when she's like, oh, their superstitions will be laid to yeah. rest. It's like, well, what are you trying to say? Yeah, their ignorance and superstitions. Yes. Like, we need to get someone to dumb it down to their level in order for them to understand. Like, all of that to me is said absolutely horribly. I don't know how it could be taken in another way, but maybe it's just a really ignorant white woman's way of putting things and that's kind of how I see it like that's how I read it okay um but uh, upon first glance it is like Jesus like it feels extremely aggressive and it has tainted her legacy completely like that one letter like where she you know said that like well bet too bad on you yeah in 1942, the birth control organizations that she had formed, which ultimately uh, numbered three, had merged and decided to change their name to Planned Parenthood Federation of America. In 1948, she helped found the International Committee on Planned Parenthood, which evolved into the International Planned Parenthood Federation in 1952 uh-huh. and soon became the world's largest non-governmental international women's health, family planning, and birth control organization. It is really interesting since I mentioned the fact that Planned Parenthood wasn't really working toward abortion rights mm-hmm. you know, in the 60s and 70s. And then hearing this story, it helps me really understand why, yeah. you know, Planned Parenthood, which is now just so many people synonymous with abortion, yep. mm-hmm. they were not even working toward those no. rights for women. No, not yeah. really. You know, it, it was all about birth control. Yeah. As far as Margaret Sanger was concerned. Um, and she remained the organization's president and served in that role until she was 80 years old. She, and what year, does it say what year she was there until? Um... If you don't have 1960, it I must be because she passed away of congestive heart failure, oh, just like Betty Friedan, in 1966 okay. at the age of 86. Okay. Um, and it was a year after the U.S. Supreme Court legalized birth control in the United States. Uh, so controversy, of course, continues to follow Margaret Sanger to this day. And while I believe that a lot of her comments, like I've said, have been taken out of context, you know, especially in reference to sterilizing black and brown communities, there's no doubt that she believed in population control through selective breeding, which often targeted poor people, those with disabilities, immigrants and people of color. Like, so you can't separate it. It's not obvious that that's what she was doing and she didn't make that clearly. These are the communities that were affected period. So like whatever your intentions were, you know, and yeah, like poor communities do need access to birth control. Like absolutely, they do need to have a say in like family yeah. planning and how many kids they can have. But I think her history of eugenics clouds any sort of positive message that she would try to claim to have had about underprivileged communities because I can't get past that. Right. You know? Right. In 2020, Planned Parenthood of Greater New York will remove or Planned Parenthood of Greater New York removed the name of Margaret Sanger from its Manhattan Health Clinic because of her, quote, harmful connections to the eugenics movement, which as a medical philosophy cannot be removed from its racist, ableist and classist roots. Exactly. We can't get rid of what's already been written. Right. So Karen Seltzer, who's the chair of the New York Affiliates Board, said in a statement, the removal of Margaret Sanger's name from our building is both a necessary and overdue step to reckon with our legacy and acknowledge Planned Parenthood 
neighborhoods contributions to historical reproductive harm within communities of color. Way to go, Planned Parenthood. Doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, and this one, like with everything else, it's hard to know because how to feel entirely because it's like, yes, without Margaret Sanger, like... Planned Parenthood has saved many women's lives. Right. Um, Without the person who started that, we would. And and the thing is, is that the organization that she started has grown since then. It's become and changed what it has Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And I think that just like with Betty for Dan, you know, we can be thankful for the things that they've started, but we can be even more thankful to those who have taken their original ideas and enhanced them in a way that's going to be more acceptable for all walks of life right it's i think it's important to recognize the amount of untold good that has come out of things that margaret sanger began right but i think it would be doing a disservice to all of us to not pay attention to and have a reckoning with the damage right that this also caused communities of color specifically yeah. you know mentally handicapped communities like it's um yeah, it's it's uh, that stuff about like we need to take all these people who shouldn't be having kids and put them on a farm somewhere. It's hard to read. It's yeah. like it's gross yeah. to think that somebody would think that about other human beings. It is. And as much as we can like have conversations about who should or shouldn't be having kids, I know we joke all the time about how like, you know, the ones who should be having kids aren't having kids because they're the ones who think the most about it and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. We can make jokes about about that and and say that certain people shouldn't be having kids or whatever. At the end of the day, it is a human right that I don't think that we can forcibly take away from anybody. And the fact that she was able to highlight that is really important. But I think that as a whole, talking about the issues in feminist history is such an important thing, especially because that is such a large criticism of the feminist movement is that it is very white, that its history is very racist. And those are all very, very valid, valid things. And I think that the only way, you know, much like Betty Friedan wouldn't want the only way for this to continue to be, a movement that's going to make a difference it's for it to evolve and change and for us to be able to say when our history is flawed and why and also give thanks to what it's done for both yeah. these women yeah i mean and as with every problematic fave episode we ever do there's good and bad in everything yeah right and it's just something that we need to pay attention to we cannot ignore it because i understand the inclination especially with the atmosphere right now around women's reproductive health um, to not want to pay attention to any negative stuff, yeah, right about like Planned Parenthood or about anything else or its origins. Like you don't want to pay attention to that stuff because you don't um, want anyone else to pay attention, right? To it, you don't want you know? to give energy to it, but I think that it is important that we do. Yeah, you know, and so. I've even recommended to people because I've never read the entirety of the Feminine Mystique because it's just not the type of book that I would normally read. But I have read many portions of it, and it's a, something that I still would recommend to people who are new to feminism in a way as being one book to read because I do think that there is a very like important historical context to that while still remembering that it is not intersectional there are faults in it but I think that it is kind of a time capsule to what was going on with that specific group of people it's part of a comprehensive education right right? which all of this is I think that this episode is part of a comprehensive education about like Make your own mind up about these people, but know that they were humans. They're pro- and they're prominent humans right. in 
this movement, whether they did great things or not. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, this one was very fun for me. And I do want to do... We've got to do a Lena Dunham episode oh, yeah. coming we up. Will. We really have to. All right. Well, if there are any problematic feminists that you want us to talk about, if there are any other topics or ideas that you have for the show, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. I'm thinking about getting rid of my Facebook as well because it's getting more and more toxic for me. Do it. But Do really it. the only reason that I still keep Facebook up is for all of you. So if you want the Facebook group to stay up, use it. Um, otherwise, I'm getting it. I'm getting rid of everything. Um, but for now, it's still up. So go and rate and review us on our Facebook business page and chat with the other listeners in the group page. And lastly, but certainly not leastly. Leastly. Lastly, but not leastly, it means so much to us when you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We did did have one new review this week, and it made both of us so very happy. We will be sharing it on Tuesday for Reviews Day Tuesday on our Instagram, and we want to see more of those wonderful reviews. So if you're listening to us, and you love us, and you haven't yet done so, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a little nice review, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Let's do that. That sounds you good. You said it like I caught you in the act or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, you're right. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.